ask that you would teach us that your name would be proclaimed. God, that as we look at this story um, of David and his son Absalom and the various characters that are involved, uh, Lord, we would see... um, we would see ourselves uh, in some of these characters, and, and we'd also see you with some of these characters, and, and uh, through David, and, and even how you, uh, Yahweh, are working behind the scenes. And God, we just pray that your name would be lifted up high, that we would be able to pull out some practical principles from this text, that we would learn, uh, God, that we would be encouraged, that we'd also be challenged. Uh, Lord, so help us uh, understand what you want us to get from this passage. Fill us with your spirit, guide us in your truth, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so, uh, if you recall, as we've been going through the life of David now in Second Samuel, uh, David's been on the run, right? He's been running from who? His son Absalom. His Absalom did this little sneaky, conniving thing, and he basically, he, he claimed the throne. Uh, and instead of David fighting his son Absalom and sticking with his palace in Jerusalem, David fled. Why? Because he just gave it to the Lord. He wasn't holding on to his position. We see that God is... He's working behind the scenes, and God, he brings David back to the wilderness because he's not through with them yet, but during this time in the wilderness, we see what? We see God providing for David, God making a way for David to exit out of the wilderness. We're going to see that even further in 2 Samuel chapter 18, that way, that door get kicked open for David to return back to the kingdom, which will happen uh, two weeks from now in 2 Samuel chapter 18. 19, but what the text primarily focuses on is the fall of Absalom. Title of this teaching is the people's king falls and God's king stands. I know we don't have PowerPoint, so I'll mention everything a couple times. The people's king falls and God's king stands. The people's king falls and God's king stands. See, God, he promises throughout his word that he will humble those who exalt themselves. He will humble those that try to position themselves in this high uh, position or level. He says, if you're the type of person that does that, you're asking to be humbled. If you're one of those dog eat dog, make it to the top, I'll run over whoever I need you, need to, to get to this place. I don't care who I hurt. I don't care what bridges I burn. God says, be careful, I humble those who exalt themselves. And that's exactly the person that I described, that's who Absalom was. He didn't care who he hurt, he didn't care who died, he was out for a position. He wanted the throne, but the throne can only be given by God, and God is going to give the throne back to his king, King David. Let's look at the text, it's 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. And David numbered the people who were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. So we see throughout this time, we see the favor of God on David's life, but we also see David making wise decisions. Uh, Remember, he uh, sent the priests and their sons back to Jerusalem so they could be like spies. And he sought Hushai back uh, uh, to Jerusalem so that he could defend the council of Ahithophel. And now we see in the midst of the beginning of this battle, rather, David, he's coming up with a military strategy. What's the point? The point is, there's two sides to this coin. 
we have God's favor. We have God's sovereignty. And yes, God loves us. And yes, God makes the way. But that doesn't mean we're not responsible for our actions and we're not responsible to use our minds and make wise decisions. Though the favor of God is on David, David still recognizes that he's got to use his brain. He's got to make some wise choices. And we know David, he was a warrior. He had great military strategy and that's why he separates these men in the way that he did to stay organized. In 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 2, Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, and one, uh, one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruai, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Itai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. David is ready and willing to go out to the battle. Why? Because he knows that he brought this whole situation on himself, right? This was all part of the consequences of him sinning against Absalom. Sorry, not Absalom. Sinning uh, against Bathsheba and Uriah. He slept with Bathsheba and then he had Uriah killed. And, And Absalom coming against David is part of that prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 12 verses 10 to 11 where he says... There's going to be division among your household. The sword will not depart your family. So David, as any good king should, he was willing to lay down his life for his people. Not only are they in a war, but he's the one that brought this war into his own life. At least in part, not that Absalom doesn't have responsibility for the actions that he performed. Second Samuel chapter 18 Verse 3, but the people answered, you shall not go out. For if we flee away, they will not care about us, nor if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. The people, they don't want David to go out with them. Why? Because they love David and they don't want anything to happen to him. Though David was a flawed man and he made some bad decisions, there was something special about David. People fell in love with this guy. Though he was flawed, he also had some other great characteristics and he was a very loving leader. And because he loved his people, his people loved him very much. So much so they were willing to lay down their life for David. David, as we just see he was willing to lay down his life for his people by joining them in the battle and his people are also willing to lay down their lives for him they tell david but you are worth you are worth ten thousand of us now david's men they realize the value of leadership, especially a good leader. And sometimes I think it's hard for us to value leadership. Why? Because it's in us to rebel, right? Naturally, we are rebellious, right? You don't have to teach a kid no. You got to teach him the right way to do things. And Jude gets into all kinds of trouble. We, we don't have to teach him the wrong thing. He figures that out on his own. We got to teach him the right thing because it's a part of our sinful nature. We rebel against authority. Lately, I wasn't going to share this, but Elizabeth and I were talking about this day. Lately, like Jude wants everything that we want, right? And it's been like that, but now he 
always throwing fits. And, and now with Elizabeth, he doesn't do this to, with me, at least not yet. But with Elizabeth, when he's like, I, I have my own water, but I want your water she, she re, for the coffee or whatever the case may be, things that he shouldn't have. And he doesn't want his own thing. He wants her thing. And when she says no, he starts throwing a fit and throwing stuff at her and hitting her. He's one years old and he's a little rebel. We didn't teach him that. That's in him. He's a little sinner. This is the truth of our carnal nature. We're naturally rebellious. We naturally disregard authority. We want to be our own boss. We want to be our own leader. But we see these people, they value David as their leader. And we need to learn to value leadership to embrace authority, to see the benefits of having someone over us. We want the freedom to be our own boss and all these different things. But the Bible teaches us we're called to submit to authority. There's protection when we submit to the governing authorities, whether that be with your job or family or spiritual. There's so many types of authorities. The text continues, Second Samuel chapter 18, verse 4. <clears throat> Then the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. What does David do? David says, hey, I hear you guys. I'm going to humble myself and not do what I said I was going to do. I'm going to listen to the people. See, David was a humble king. And this is point number one. God's king is humble. God's king is humble. He's not a Saul nor is he an Absalom. He's not a man that's led by pride. He's a man that's mostly led by humility and love. Though he makes mistakes, and yes, though there have been times where David has given into pride, for the most part, we see some pretty impeccable character with David, and we see it here once again. He's humble. He's willing to listen to the advice of the people that he's leading. He's not having a... Uh, like a, a power trip because no, 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 this is what I said. I don't care what you said. I need to have the right idea. Uh, I need to be the one that everybody listens to. That's not the person that David is. He doesn't have to be the hero all the time. He'll let other people be the hero. He just genuinely wants what's best for God and what's best for the people. And sometimes that looks like uh, humbling himself and allowing the people to speak and going with what the people say. See, David, he's humble, and he's been humble since he was a kid, since God chose him. And David knows God didn't choose him because he's this great man. God, David knows that God chose him because he's a humble man. He identified with the lowly. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 27 and to 29, uh, it gives us the qualifications of the chosen of God. And he says, God chooses the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God chooses the weak things of this world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things God chooses and the, and the things which are despised so that no flesh can glory in his presence. God chooses the lowly. David recognizes that. If we can't identify with the lowly, then we're not fit to lead God's people. David, even after so many years of being in this position as king, he was willing to give in to humility and go with what the people had advised. So, the people, 
They have David stay back. And it says here in verse 1, sorry, verse 4. So the king stood beside the gate and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. So we see the people weren't just talking about laying their life down for David or there wasn't just an appearance of willingness to lay down their life for David. They actually went out. They, they sent, uh, David sent them out and they went out willing to risk their lives on behalf of their king. We see the devotion of David's followers and it gives us a picture of the devotion we're to have for Christ. He laid down his life for us, so we should be willing to lay down our life for him. What does that look like? It doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to die on a cross. Most of us, that probably won't happen to us. But Jesus did say, whoever desires to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me daily. The Lord invited us into a life of sacrifice. He said, I paid the price for you. I was willing to sacrifice my body for you. And then Paul says later on in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, he says, present your body as a living sacrifice. It's your reasonable service. Like that's, that's the obvious response that we should have when we consider what Jesus did for us on the cross. The followers of David, they're willing to lay down their life for their king. Because they know he was willing to lay down his life for them. Second Samuel chapter 18, verse 5. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains orders concerning Absalom. So David, he submits to the request, he stays back, he gives in to the people's opinion, but he also has a request. What's his request? Be gentle with my son. He said this so clearly, and what I find so fascinating about this is that Absalom wronged David, big time, right? Absalom... I guarantee you, if Absalom ended up getting the chance to kill King David, I guarantee he would have done it. That's just the type of guy that he was. But that's not David's mentality with Absalom. And we'll see later on, David not only has mercy on Absalom, he has mercy on the commander, uh, Absalom's commander. He has mercy on all these people that, that rise up against him. Why? Because he's a merciful king. And this is point number two. God's king is merciful. God's king is merciful. David was a man that could forgive people for serious offenses. As we know, David is a picture of Christ. He's a type of Christ. Jesus is forgiving. Whether we've betrayed him, whether we've talked badly about him at any point in our life, whether we've rebelled against him, Regardless of what we've done to Jesus, he's willing to forgive us. And we see this through the person of David, a picture of the forgiveness of Christ. However, when Christ forgives us, he expects us to forgive others. Let me show you. It's Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. He says in verse 32, we're just going to read part of this parable that Jesus um, uh, taught on. It's called the unforgiving or unmerciful servant. Okay, and it says in verse 32, uh, bottom line, this guy had been forgiven a debt that was just 
It would be like trying to pay back the lottery won ten times over. Like an impossible debt to pay back. So this guy was forgiven a debt and then he held this other guy to a lesser debt. Okay, so he didn't extend forgiveness. So this is the response in verse 32, Matthew chapter 18. Then his master, after he had called him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father will... Uh, Heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. God forgives us. And what's forgiveness? It's a clearing of a debt, okay? We, the wages of sin is death. We owe God our lives. We owe Him the debt is, is death and eternity and hell. But Jesus took that debt. He paid the price so that we wouldn't have to. He forgives us and we see Jesus teach clearly here, hey, hey, hey. Consider the forgiveness that I gave you, a a debt so insurmountable, you really could never pay it off even in eternity. Think about that next time you're holding bitterness or resentment towards someone. God expects us to forgive. If we want forgiveness, we need to be forgiving. See, David was a king that was merciful. He was a forgiving man. Why? Because he never lost sight of his own need for forgiveness. That's why David was able to forgive other people. He recognized how much he had been forgiven of. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches us. We're to forgive others as Christ forgave us. We see this in the picture of David here in this text. And it says here, this is important. The end of verse 5, that last sentence says, And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains orders concerning Absalom. The author emphasizes that everyone heard this command. Why? Because later on, Joab's going to break this command, not to ruin the story. So it wasn't that Joab didn't hear what the king told him. It's that he didn't apply it. He didn't respond in obedience. See, it's one thing to hear the king of kings, right? It's another thing to do what he asks us to do. Sometimes we'll hear God speak to us, whether it's through the word or the various ways that he that he speaks to us. But but it's only one part to hear the Lord. It's an entirely different thing to walk in obedience. But Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, uh, verse 27, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. <laughs> Not only do they hear my voice, but they also do what I'm asking them to do. Everybody heard it, but not everybody is going to follow the direction. Second Samuel chapter 18, verse 6. So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured people that day. that day, then this uh, devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Now, this is interesting. You only got three verses about this battle. 
the primary heart of this text is the condition of David, which we'll get into uh, later on. He talks about this battle, and then they shift to Absalom and what happens to them. But we see in this text, this battle was quickly won. Why? Because God's favor was on his king. And this is point number three. God has favor on his king. God has favor on his king. It doesn't matter how large the enemy's army is, because we don't know how large this army was, but it was substantially larger than David's army. It doesn't matter how many men there were fighting against the king. God's favor led David to victory. The enemy, he he could have had uh, millions and millions of soldiers come against David, but David had what? He had the king of kings and the Lord of lords on his side. And that was the very reason that David was able to experience victory. See, with God on our side, the enemy truly doesn't stand a chance. We're guaranteed victory. You know that? We're guaranteed victory. How? The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith truly leads to victory. David, he trusted the Lord, and the Lord brought about victory. Do you trust that God will bring you victory even when you're facing overwhelming odds? Do you believe that God has favor on your life? Because God says he has favor on those who are his. He makes all things work together for the good to to those who he loves, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. David was successful not because he had the mighty men, but because he had a mighty God. I want to point out something here in verse 8. Says here, <clears throat> for the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. We see God's grace extended through David's men and David's men's circumstances. God was literally using nature to bring about victory. Like the woods took out more people than the men. Like how does that happen? Why didn't the woods take out David's men? Because God was using the woods. It's crazy. He was using nature to bring about this victory. See, God, sometimes he brings about victory in a different way than we would have anticipated. These men, guaranteed, they thought they were going to win this battle with the sword. Even if God had favor on the sword, uh, I doubt that they thought that God was going to use the woods to devour all these men. But the same holds true in our life. Sometimes God brings victory in our life in a way that we wouldn't expect. Yeah, I thought God was going to to give me victory by taking me out of the battle, but that's not what he did. He gave me the perseverance and the endurance to get through the battle, to overcome the battle. He fashioned circumstances to set me up for success. Man, I thought God was going to take this sin away from me, and the struggle's still there. God didn't take the sin away from me, but he did give me the tools to overcome the sin. And he did give me the wisdom to take the way of escape every single time I see it. See, the way God brings about victory isn't always the way that we think he's going to. But his ways aren't our ways. They're better than our ways. 
and God's grace is made known to those who are his. He makes a way for those who are his. And he does that with David here in 2 Samuel chapter 18. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick bows of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth, so he was left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule which was under him went on. So Absalom, he went into the battle, which contradicted the advice of who? You remember Ahithophel? He said, no, let me lead the charge. You stay back because if you're taken out, this whole war is done. We can have a battle and lose 12,000 men. And if Absalom's still alive, uh, we're able to fight another day. But Absalom gave in to his pride and he took the advice of Hushai. Why? Because Hushai, like we talked about last week, he appealed to Absalom's pride. Man, you lead the charge. Like you're the man, you're the new king. You go after your father. Prove that you're better than him. You're a mighty, mightier warrior than he, than he is. So we see Absalom. He disregarded the advice of Ahithophel, took the advice of Hushai, and he ends up here stuck with his head caught in a tree. This word head is also translated hair. So uh, we don't actually know if it was his head, like he was like caught like his head um, was like stuck in the fork of a tree, or his hair was cut in the fork of the tree. Uh, either way, both these things are a picture of Absalom's pride. Okay, say it was his hair. If you remember something, back in Second Samuel chapter 14, the Bible discusses his hair, and I believe this is a little foreshadowing either way, but look what it says here. Second Samuel chapter 14, verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. Then he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels according to the king's standard. Guy had a lot of hair, but he also had a big head, right? Character wise, he had a big head. Either way, we see this was all part of his vanity. And this is point number four. The people's king is vain. The people's king is vain. Absalom's identity was rooted in his appearance. He was the best looking man. People praised him for how good he was. He would cut his three plus pounds of hair everywhere. He just had a really thick, I don't know what that would look like. Three pounds of hair. That's crazy. Uh, but Absalom had this just beautiful flowing hair that everyone praised him for. He was so concerned about his appearance and ultimately his vanity And his pride got the best of him. See, our vanity will get us stuck in places we don't want to be. See, Absalom was stuck likely because of his hair or his big head. Either way, and he was stuck in a place that he really didn't want to be. Sometimes the Lord gives us warnings. Hey, 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 humble yourself. Quit being prideful. Quit being vain. Quit quit worrying about your appearance. And we don't take heed to the warning. Absalom didn't. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse uh, 12 it says, Pride comes before the fall. 
Truly, pride comes before the fall. When we're not taking heed to those warnings, our pride will catch up to us. Our vanity, again, it will get us stuck in places that we don't want to be. Just like Absalom's hair. When we don't cut the pride out, right? It just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing until it gets to a point where we face our ruin. And this is the beginning of the ruin of Absalom. But it wasn't just his hair. It was his mentality. You can't just blame it on his hair, right? It was the decisions that he made. It was his perspective. He had that mentality that that nothing can happen to me. I'm invincible. I'm the man. Even though God says this, that might apply to other people, but it certainly doesn't apply to me. I can do whatever I want, and I am going to be the exception of the rule. I'm not going to face the consequences. Everybody else might, but I'm not going to. This was Absalom's mentality. If it wasn't, we wouldn't have seen him doing the things that he was doing. Be careful if that's your mentality. Because just when you think you're standing at the top of the world, God might just yank that rug right out from under you. Next thing you know, you're caught in a tree hanging by your hair or by your head or whatever the case may be. Absalom, he's stuck in a tree. The text continues, 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 10. Now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, you just saw him and why did you strike him there to the ground? Or sorry, why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai saying, beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life. There is nothing hidden from the king and you yourself would have set yourself against me. So Joab says, man, why didn't you take out Absalom? I would have paid you a bunch of money. He says, no, no, no. I'm not going to be bribed by money this servant of david was more concerned with honor than he was with reward it wasn't about any money there wasn't any amount of money that joab could give him in order for him to disobey his king this man couldn't be bought can you be bought what do i mean is there something that the enemy could give you, that the enemy could offer you, that you would be willing to take in order to be disobedient to your Lord. Remember, God, sorry, uh, Satan tried to do it to Jesus in the wilderness. He says, I'll offer you all the kingdoms of the world. What is he trying to do? He's trying to buy Jesus. He's trying to buy his loyalty. And that's what the enemy does. He wants to buy our loyalty so that we'll disregard and disrespect and dishonor the king. That's his objective. Follow me. I got all these things to offer you. Is there a sexual encounter, a guilty pleasure, a quick fix Is there something that the enemy could offer you that you would say, I'll take it and I'll walk away from him. I'll dishonor him. I'll disregard him. Because that's the reality. The enemy wants to buy our disobedience. He says to us, I'll offer you all the kingdoms of this world. But it doesn't usually start there. 
It starts with, uh, you see this fruit? Doesn't it look good, right? Doesn't it like, look at how good this is. I know God told you not to have it, but God doesn't really know what he's talking. He never ate it, so he doesn't really know what will happen to you. Just take a bite. It won't be that bad. At least this time it won't be that bad. Maybe it was last time, but just take the bite. And you know what? When we take the bite of the forbidden brute, we're being bought by the enemy. We're being disloyal to our king. Not this man, though. He won't be bought. He's motivated by loyalty and honor and a love for his king. We're called to be servants like him, servants that can't be bought for any price. Second Samuel chapter 18, verse 14. Then Joab said, I cannot linger with you. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. Joab, on the other hand, he didn't hesitate, right, to disobey his king. The guy just reminded him again. It's not that we can't look at this and go, oh, Joab, maybe he didn't hear him. No, he heard him. He heard him the first time when David said it. And then this guy reminded him that Joab disregarded everything that David said. Why? Because he thought he knew better. Joab thought he knew better. I know better than the king. He doesn't know what's good for him. Now, there is a reality that Joab might be right in this. You know, if he doesn't kill Absalom, maybe Absalom down the road ends up killing David. But he's not right. Why? Because the king told him to do something or not to do something, and he ended up doing it. See, sometimes we can justify our sin because we think, that our way is the right way, even though it may contradict God's way. But it only matters what God thinks. It doesn't matter what we think about the situation. If it contradicts the word of God, if we know it's wrong, there's no justification for sin. There's no justification for disobeying the king. Joab likely justified it in his mind. Whatever he was thinking, he thrust three spears through Absalom. He says he impaled him in the heart. Now, um, in when the, the Bible uses the, the heart, uh, they're not just like talking about our beating heart like this. He's talking about like the general midsection. Um, so it wasn't, he, he was still alive. So if it hit him in the heart, he would have been dead. But he thrust three spears into him. Like, doesn't that seem a bit excessive, right? Three spears? Like, it seems like Joab might be a little angry. Probably is. Remember Absalom, he lit Joab's field on fire when Joab was trying to be nice. It was Joab that brought Absalom back to the kingdom by using that lady to uh, basically compel David to make that decision to be merciful to Absalom. That was all Joab's doing. And Absalom gets him back by lighting his field on fire. So Joab, he might have thought that he was doing the right thing for the king, but with the this excess of three spears, it seems like there was some anger and some revenge that he was motivated by. The text continues, Second Samuel chapter 18, verse 15. And ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. Joab led others in rebellion. These other people know. The whole army knows that they're t- we're supposed to be gentle with Absalom. Okay, I don't think throwing three spears through him is very gentle, right? Like we can all agree that that's not gentle, like they're disobeying King David. But it's not just Joab. Now Joab says it's okay to disobey the king. And now you got ten guys following him. That's so true with our sin. When we rebel against the king, we're telling everybody it's okay. 
Even if we say, well, you know, this is my issue and I just struggle with it. Whatever your perspective is or whatever your justification is, when we sin, we're telling other people that it's okay to sin. It's okay to disregard the king. That might apply to them, but it doesn't apply to me. Joab led these other young men in rebellion. And what did they do? It says that they struck and killed Absalom. This is point number five. The people's king will fall. The people's king will fall. As we've mentioned, the throne of God's kingdom cannot be taken by man. It can only be given by God. Absalom might have taken the throne for a moment, but God is going to restore David to the throne. When people self-appoint themselves as, as leaders over God's people, God is not cool with that. They're asking to be humbled. It's Matthew chapter 23, verse 12. It says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. This was a promise that, this is a promise that is given throughout scripture and Absalom is experiencing the fulfillment of this promise. He didn't listen to God. He exalted himself and now he's humbled. Humbled literally to the point of death. This also gives us a picture of a time to come with the Antichrist. See, Absalom, both King Saul and Absalom are types of the Antichrist. They come after God's king. They try to kill God's king. Then Absalom literally takes the throne of God's king. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this is all speaking about the Antichrist. It says this, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Okay, that's what the Antichrist is going to do. Halfway through the tribulation. It's referred to as the abomination of desolation. He's going to come to the temple after the temple's built again. And he's going to claim to be God and demand to be worshipped as God. He's trying to steal God's throne. And he's going to sit there for three and a half more years. But guess what's going to happen after the three, three and a half year, more years? In Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, it says he gets tossed in the lake of fire. He's done. The Antichrist is wiped out. So it applies to all creatures. It applies to, 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 to all people. It applies to the angels. It applies to, to, to human beings. If we choose to exalt ourselves, we're asking to be humbled. God's throne cannot be stolen as Absalom finds out the hard way. Second Samuel chapter 18, verse 16. So Joab blew the trumpet and the people returned from pursuing Israel. For Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. Then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. So after they kill him, he's hanging on this tree and they kill him and then they throw him into this pit and they pour stones on him. This was symbolism. This was a sign that Absalom was an accursed man. Okay, we see this in Joshua and Deuteronomy. Uh, if you remember Achan, that uh, um, 
he deceived the people and he stole things that he shouldn't have taken and, and they ended up, it's sad, they killed him and his family. Uh, but then they, they put rocks on him. They buried him with rocks. Uh, then in Joshua chapter 8, they do it with the king of Ai. We see this picture of somebody getting buried with stones and them being cursed. That's what Joab's trying to say here by burying him this way, that Absalom was a cursed man. It also says in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, Cursed is any man who is hung on a tree. So not only is he cursed for hanging on the tree, he's cursed by being parried in this heap of stones. Not to cause any confusion, right? Jesus was cursed on a tree, not because he rebelled against God, but because he was God and he was cursed so that we wouldn't have to be. This is also foreshadowing. The enemy, as he exalts himself against God, what does God, Jesus do when he comes back? He throws the false prophet and the antichrist in the lake of fire. And what does he do with Satan? He throws him in the pit (laughs) to be bound for a thousand years, Absalom, as well as thrown into the pit. Then all Israel, it says in verse 17, they fled. They had no one left to follow. So they went back home. Verse 18 Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And to this day, it is called Absalom's monument. See, Absalom, he was always out to make a name for himself. So even before he died, he built this monument. He wanted his name to be great. But what was his, will his name forever be remembered as, right? A man of, of rebellion, uh, uh, a man of stubbornness, a man of pride, a man of vanity, uh, an ungrateful man. He's a prince in the kingdom and that wasn't enough for him. So though he wanted to make his name great, Whenever we hear the name Absalom, we don't think of a great man. We think of a spoiled little brat, right? This is the reality. When we try to make our name great, when we're building monuments for ourselves, very great. But the Bible says when you purpose to make God's name great, then he'll make your name great. If you're worried about taking, if you take care of my name, then I'll take care of your name, okay? You focus on me and I'll take care of your name But when you're focused on making your name so great, it often doesn't end up being associated with very great things. So Absalom, he built this monument because he says he has no sons. Now he did have sons in 2 Samuel chapter 14 verse 27. uh, Apparently all those sons died. Um, uh, It doesn't seem like Absalom was lying about this, so they likely died. He had three sons. 2 Samuel chapter 18 verse 19 then Ahimez, the son of Zaduk, said, let me run now and take the news to the king how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. So remember this God, a guy, Ahimez, he was uh, with David from the very beginning. He's the son of Zaduk, who is one of the priests. And, and, and he wants to give the news to David that, hey, we defeated Absalom's army. David, you can come back to the kingdom. He's so excited. Uh, he was one of the messengers in the last chapter that uh, told David to cross over the Jordan. So this guy is loyal to David. He's definitely been involved. And now because he thought, man, I've been fighting on the right side and the right side won. I want to tell David the good news. Verse 
But Joab won't let him. Second Samuel chapter 18, verse 20. And Joab said to him, you shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day. But today you shall take no news because the king's son is dead. Okay, uh, Ahimez, he is uh, aware that Absalom is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. And Ahimez, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, but whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. So Joab said, why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? But whatever happens, he said, let me run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. So Absalom says, I, I don't want you, Ahimez, to, to give the news to David. Why? Because Joab knows that this isn't good news for David. He, he doesn't, he, he probably has some type of relationship with the priest's son and, and he doesn't want him to be the bearer of bad news. So he sends this other guy. He's kind of trying to protect him. At least it appears. But this guy is so determined to get the news, the news to David. He keeps begging Joab and Joab finally lets him go. Look at verse 24. Now, David was sitting between the two gates. This is exactly where he was when he sent out the army. So he hasn't left his position, it appears. And the watchman went up to the roof over the gate to the wall, lifted his eyes and looked. And there was a man running alone. So imagine the anticipation. David's sitting in the same place that he was. He doesn't know what happens. Like all he knows is that his best friends are at war with the son, right? That's all he knows. Okay. There's no way this is ending well. Like no news is really good news. So David, the anxiety, the anticipation, just waiting for somebody to tell him something. And sure enough, here comes two messengers. Verse 25, then the watchman cried out and told the king, and the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. Then the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, there is another man running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimez, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and he comes with good news. So Ahimez called out and said to the king, all is well. Then he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. So Ahimez he took the longer route, but it was the less difficult route, and he made sure to get to David first because he wanted to be the bearer of what he thought was good news. And he says, all is well. We're going to see this isn't good news for David when he finds out that his son was killed. Good news to you might not be good news to somebody else, right? Your good news could be somebody's bad good news. It even applies to the gospel. The gospel means good news. It's good news for who? Those who receive it, it ain't good news for those who don't, right? So sometimes good news for us could be bad news for someone else. This is good news for a Ahimez. This is bad news for David. Second Samuel chapter 18, verse 29. The king said, is the young man Absalom safe? David's main concern was for his son. We see even more than the army, his best friends that were fighting for him. 
despite everything that happened, David still loves his son. Even though his son rebelled against him, he betrayed him, he was out to kill him, David still loves him. David still forgives him. David still cares about him. He's still concerned for him. See, when we betray the son of David, when we rebel against him, when we do horrible things to him, he still loves us and he wants the best for us and he wants us to live. He wants us to to live the life that he offers us. Well, why? Why would Jesus still wants us to have the best life possible if we rebel against him, if we betray him. It's because we're his. That's the reason that David still loves his son Absalom. Absalom, not the best son, I'd say, right? Not the best son. Not the He's not going to win the best son of the month award ever, right? But he's still David's son. He's his. And that's why he continues to love him, even though Absalom did horrible things against him. So he asked about a son, verse 29. Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and me your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. Okay, Ahimaaz is not telling the whole story. We know Joab just told him that Absalom was dead. So he's just telling him a part of the truth, but he's not telling him the whole truth. The text continues. Verse 30, and the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Just then the Cushite came and the Cushite said, there is good news, my lord, the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord, the king and all who rise against you to do harm, be like that young man. Not the news that David wanted to hear, but this was God's plan all along. Look back at 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 14. 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 14. So Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai, the archite, is better than the advice of Ahithophel. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel, listen, to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. God knew he had to bring disaster on Absalom. God knew things that we don't know. We didn't know how Absalom would respond if he was in prison or whatever, and he got back into David's good graces, tried to kill him. We don't know, but God knew Absalom had to be destroyed. I'm sure David doesn't like the way that God worked in this particular situation, but God's way was the only necessary way. See, the preserving of God's kingdom involves the perishing of God's enemies. The preserving of God's kingdom involves the perishing of God's enemies. For God's kingdom to survive, God's enemies need to perish. It's just the reality Absalom had to go. We're almost there. Second Samuel chapter 18, verse 33, last verse. Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David, he's deeply moved 
this word deeply moved or this phrase in the Hebrew, uh, it implies violent trembling. Okay, so this, we're not just talking tears. Like he is physically a mess. His heart is so broken that he's physically ill. He, he's violently trembling. Not only has David lost his son, but David's the reason he lost his son. It goes back to the prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 12, which I mentioned earlier. I'll read it for you again. Verse 10. Now therefore, because of what David did in committing adultery with Bathsheba and having Uriah killed and the other servants. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. All this is happening because of David's mistakes. God's forgiven him eternally but he still has consequences that he's facing. So it's not just the love for his son. It's the reality that he knows that he's the reason that he brought death upon Absalom. And it didn't end there. If you remember, maybe the, maybe it could have been a different situation. If, if, if David did something uh, about his son Amnon when he raped Tamar, but two years passed and nothing happened. And Absalom, he sought justice for himself and he had Amnon killed. And, and then maybe something could have been different if David reached out to Absalom and told him, no, you're not exiled. You can come by back to the kingdom. But then another three years pass and he doesn't see his dad. And all these bad decisions, they build up, they build up, they build up. And ultimately, David, he loses his son. Once again, not to take anything away from the poor decisions of Absalom. But this is part of the reason why King David is so deeply moved. He's probably thinking about these things. You know, when someone dies a tragic death like that, and you're a part of it, what do you think? What could I have done about it? Could I have done something different and this person not die? So David has deep remorse, deep regret. And David's guilt is magnifying his grief. His guilt is magnifying his grief. See, God's king, he's a man of sorrows. But whereas David's sorrows are largely rooted in his mistakes, the sorrows of Jesus Christ are rooted in what? In our mistakes. And it actually says in uh, Isaiah chapter 53 that Jesus would be 700 plus years before Jesus came on the scene. If you haven't read Isaiah 53, I encourage you to read it. It's an absolutely powerful passage speaking of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And he says he's a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. The Lord, his heart was broken on the cross. It was literally pierced. But his heart was crushed. Why? Because of the mistakes of his people. The mistakes of his children. David is so sorrowful. The text says here at the end. David says, if only I had died in your place. David was willing to die for the son who rebelled against him. And he's probably thinking back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. When he asked for forgiveness and God forgave David, he's probably thinking, man, if I was just taken out then, I would have rather been taken out then than have four of my sons die because of my mistakes. However, David was willing to die in the place of his son. The son of David, Jesus Christ, was not only willing to die in the place of his rebellious children, he actually did. He, he followed through with it. And he performed the ultimate act of humility on the cross. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, in Philippians chapter 2, 
I got it marked. Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 5 says this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus left his glory. He left his heavenly throne. He became a man. Not only that, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, death of the cross. Look at verse 9. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself, and what? God exalted him. That's the other side of that promise. You exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. You humble yourself, you'll be exalted. Jesus proves that promise to be true. We see that in the life of David. We also, more importantly, see it in the life of Jesus Christ. But we also see the opposite in the life of Absalom, right? He exalted himself, and the Lord humbled him, and humbled him to the point of death. This is a clear warning and a clear example as to how God responds to pride versus humility. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, it says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. David wasn't out for position. He knew it was God's uh, responsibility to put him in the place that he wanted him. And he humbled himself. He listened to his people. He did the things that God was asking him to do. And God brings him back to the throne in the next chapter, whereas Absalom, he seeks position. He fights for it. He gives into pride. And his pride literally kills him. Let's pray.